Welcome to the Viewpoint Podcast with your host, Henry Grosek. Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Viewpoints for the first time Dr. Susan Banke, who who's the Chair of the Department of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Sydney, as well as a Senior Lecturer in Sydney's Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Wrote a, Susan wrote a piece recently which was published in The Age, uh, very recently, Ukraine needs our help, but so does Myanmar. So that'll... That'll be the basis of much of what we chat about. But firstly, welcome to Viewpoints, Dr. Susan Banke. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Henry. My pleasure. As I said off air, um, a, a timely reminder that uh, that piece you wrote that uh, we need to keep our, our attention span on the things that have uh, been taking our time recently to stay that way, not just move on to the next. But firstly, your career, um, your you're involved in, in quite a few things and, and at the hub of it, sociology plays a significant role. You might like to firstly tell us a bit about your career path and, and why you took that. Sure. Uh, look, as a person who cares deeply about social interactions, to my mind, sociology is the best possible way to understand what is happening in the world. When we think about the behaviours that anyone undergoes, and this could be children, it could be political leaders, it could be uh, people that work at banks. To my mind, we can explain those through the structures in society that create the atmosphere, the overall atmosphere into which people live. So the the area that I study mostly is migration. You mm. can ask yourself for a migrant, why would a migrant um, act in a particular way? Why would they either remain in a particular part of the country or why would they for example, go out and work in a different kind of um, work field than they had before. And often what you would find is that migration patterns can be explained by what is happening in society at the time, what is happening at the political level, and what is happening at the sh social level. Now, I just use this as an example to say mm. that the study of society helps us to understand so many of the ways that we work individually. And that's why I became interested in sociology. And I specifically look, as I just mentioned, most specifically, I look at um, refugees and migrants. That's kind of my area of most um, pointed knowledge. I don't like the word expertise because I, I feel it's a little bit too um, high-minded. <laughs> oh, too but, <laughs> But I think I think we we are in a we are in a moment in society where we see that so much of society is having waves of changes. I don't need to tell you what those are. You would you would know them. Any of your listeners would know. This is from um, environmental changes to threats about COVID to really changing political landscapes throughout the world. And these both have impacts on society, and society impacts them. It's a good point you make there, Susan. As a as a migrant myself, my parents came out um, in the early fifties after World War Two from Europe. Uh, your words, your words uh, have a special resonance uh, with me. Do you ever get frustrated then that much of the um, public commentary on well, let's just talk about migration uh, for a, for a second, uh, and that covers the broad spectrum of everybody who's. Uh, trying to find a new country in which to live. Uh, do you ever get frustrated with the, the perhaps lack of um, sociology in the thinking of people? Mm. 
That's a great question. What I would say is it really depends on the publication that you're reading. Of course, we know that there's always going to be a rush to the new sensational story. And those sensational stories can both be for the problematic or for the or for the benefit of migrants and refugees. There are some feel-good stories, which you know can be really beautiful and heartwarming to talk about the new refugee doctor who is working on the front lines of COVID, as an example. Um, there's also some that can be quite simplistically demonizing refugees and migrants in ways that are deeply problematic. And, and that really just depends on the publication. What is often lost um, and look, this is just always going to be true in the popular press. What is often lost is that, of course, there's the nuance, right? We we should never consider refugees and migrants as just the hero or just the victim. They are they are complex characters as as they would be as would be anyone in society, and that's that's often you know hard to see in a um, in a short piece that that is going to be trying to have a specific take but let's be fair that's that 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 would that would be hard to do in the popular press that's that's not the role of popular press and i you know as again as a sociologist that has studied the interaction between society and media we understand that role it pl- it plays an important role um there are times that i i think it could be there could be things that are you know said in more complex and nuanced ways but my beef is not really with the media per se Mm. Interesting thing that I've often um, I've often mulled over and, and and questioned aloud is we live in a a country in the, uh, modern Australia is 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 full of people who have migrated here have been granted uh, refugee status uh, even even in cases asylum status and yet there's a harshness that's quite visible about our policy towards some of these people. Um, Absolutely. I find find that hard to explain and understand given the background of so many um, Australians of today. Yes. Look, there are almost every year there is a student that will come to me and say, I would like to write my research paper on why Australia's migration and refugee policies are so punishing. And often what I have to say to them is, feel free, go for your life. These these theories, the theories that try to explain that have been reviewed and read many, many times. We we don't seem to have found the new reason that we can, for example, reverse and make it more um, salient for the Australian public to be more sympathetic. But I can tell you what some of them are. One is something that's called the island mentality. Despite the fact that, in fact, Proportionate to other countries, Australia has accepted far fewer refugees because of its um, its moat, because it's you know it has a, the, a very big moat around it. The island mentality makes the fear of the foreigner in some ways greater than in places that have far more porous borders, like for example Europe or the United States. But you're also right that within the country there is a great deal of migration. So one would ask. Well, a country that has 24% of its migrants, uh, excuse me, 24% of its population being migrants, for what reason would there be such a uh, an unsympathetic ear? Now, first, let me not cast too wide a, uh, a statement, because the truth is there are many people that are ex- extremely 
sympathetic to migrants and refugees. And those are people that work at organizations or volunteer for organizations that are trying to elevate the um, importance of treating refugees and migrants with humane policies. But, you know, there are other theories. So there's a theory about moral panic, which is this idea that the press sign of kind of fixates on certain stories that do what's called securitizing refugees or migrants. It focuses on the on the potential negative security aspects of having these um, populations within the country. And that is something that has been done exceedingly effectively by um, hardcore nationalists who claim that um, the country is being diluted of its original flavor, those people generally tend not to talk about the fact that it was the very arrival of the white fella that, that in fact, diluted whatever original flavor the country came from, right? That, that, that sometimes gets lost in that, in that sort of jumping up and down from nationalist parties. Um, this idea that the, the morality of the country is going to sort of uh, be, be threatened or at risk by the introduction of... Um, people who are, are different. We know that there's a deeply, deeply racialized aspect to this. So as an example, um, a couple of years ago, South Af white South African farmers were able to get into the country at the discretion of the um, Minister of in Immigration, um, saying that you know it wasn't safe for those farmers to remain in South Africa anymore. At the same time, um, African refugees from other places, so black African refugees, who are trying to claim asylum and get into the country were not able to arrive in the country. So we know that these are deeply racialized um, policies as well. I do want to say that Australia many times in the past has been considered really the international pariah of refugee protection for its um, treatment of refugees. In particular right now, the fact that if somebody arrives by boat, Australia has sort of sworn that no one will be able to remain permanently in the country if they arrive by boat. This, again, is a really interesting thing. I mean, people come by plane and they claim asylum. And, and the fear of the foreigner is somehow not as great when it, when it comes to this uh, arrival by airplane. It has something to do with a fear that the... The uncertainty of a person that arrives on shore by boat, the inability to check them at a at a at a border, uh, you know, an airplane mm. border, somehow creates this fear. So mm. I've thrown a lot of ideas at you about the reason for which um, we see some of those some of those fears in the popular press, and those we know also come from the government, right? The government has has either um, fanned those flames or has in fact uh, been the, the generator of those those flames of a fear of the foreigner no well put well put Susan um, uh, just as a, an aside how many of uh, those students that come to you on an annual basis uh, wanting to do research in that area uh, pursue that line of uh, research or take your advice well they some do or I, or I'll say to some, you know, take a look at the literature that's already written on this topic because there's already quite, I mean, the, the, the puzzling, the, the, pu the question that you asked is a puzzling one for many people. For people that are progressive, 
that find that there are, you know, Australia is progressive in some other ways. The, for example, the universal health care in this country is the envy of many places in the world. And the question is, how can we be progressive on some social policies and so regressive on others? And so, yeah, it's a it's a question that's asked many times. And I, I do have students that will kind of pick at pieces of it. They may ask about one particular policy or has there been a change that can be explained by some particular change in the political or social environment? Mm, good point. Then we don't take we need to take a short break, Susan. Can you hold the line? You bet. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossack. I'm in the middle of a discussion with Dr. Susan Banky on uh, migration, uh, refugees, asylum seekers, and also um, we're looking at the unfolding crisis in the Ukraine and, of course, those that exist elsewhere, in particular Myanmar. And Susan wrote a piece recently in The Age. Ukraine needs our help, but so does Myanmar. We might move to that one uh, on coming back, Susan. Tell us why you wrote it. Um, I, I want to say that I was worried in writing this that it would come across in any way that I was unsympathetic to what is happening in Ukraine, and I that that is absolutely not the case. the 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 attention that Ukraine is getting is absolutely deserved. The um, the treatment of those within the country, the fear, the real fear, the, the heartbreaking photographs that we see of parents saying goodbye to their children at the borders, at the Hungarian or the Polish borders, is worthy of, of note. And it is worthy of our sympathy and it is worthy of our outrage so that we should respond. But for those of us that follow other places in the world, and, and the one that I am the most familiar with and the one that I wrote about in this article, which is Myanmar, what we have noticed is that there has been a bit of a different reaction. Now, I will, and or I, I would give another example, which is Afghanistan. Now, this is not to say that there was no response at all, but it is to say that when it comes down to the response from the Australian government, from Canberra, what we see is that there's been a real difference. The Australian government, unlike, for example, the United States, did not put new sanctions in place after the coup in Myanmar of February 1st, 2021. Already, this uh, sanctions have been imposed on Ukraine here in Australia. And, you know, one conflict, the Myanmar conflict, is now, uh, you know, uh, thir- 13 and a half months old. And we still don't see sanctions. Whereas already, we've seen that from Ukraine. Similarly, um, the treatment of um, the refugee populations have really varied. Now, we did just see some good news that um, there have been some um, defectors from the um, Myanmar military that have been accepted for for uh, 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 protection here. So that that does actually show that there's been some change, and that actually just came out after I wrote. Um, just at the time that I was writing my article. But the truth is what we see, and, and this goes back to my point about racialization, that often the idea that there's a, a white minority that is fleeing for danger, the speed with which um, an immigration department may respond to say, we need to offer protection to those that can get out, is is uh, is, quite, is much faster 
than what we see with um, people from Myanmar, where the response has been slower. Now, I don't want to be too critical of the migration policies because the truth is those Myanmar students who were here when the coup happened remain here in the country. They have not been given permanent protection, but they do remain here in the country. Um, and at this point, that's important. But at some point, you know, there's a need to acknowledge that um, permanent protection may be needed. And I would expand that. This is not in my article, but I would expand that to Afghanistan, where there are people here who remain uh, deeply, deeply fearful for being back in Afghanistan um, after the fall of Kabul. And the Australian government, while not, while not threatening to deport anyone, has refused to offer permanent protection. So those are some of the ways in which we see a really a differential treatment between um, what's happening in Ukraine and other places that have had really serious crises in the last year. Mm. Yeah, it's not just um, in Afghanistan. I think Iraq, earlier when I was young, the Vietnam War, as we call it, the American War, as the Vietnamese call it, uh, yeah. a similar thing happened. Um, as I recall, I think um, actually it was a conservative prime minister, Malcolm Fraser, who who led the way on 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 allowing Cambodian refugees on mass to come to our country when uh, when they were the victims of the the Khmer Rouge? Uh, so we don't have a good track record in that field at all in non-white uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, Australian uh, uh, people refugees wanting to come to our country. In, in well, it used places. to. I mean, there was a time when it was certainly more sympathetic. I mean, there was the Australia White policy, which preceded that. But there there have been moments in Australia's history when there there have been um, greater humanitarian considerations um, sort of absorbed into the policymaking in Canberra. Um, that, that right now it's at an all-time low when it when it when it comes to the refugee treatment. You know, as as regards the difference between Ukraine and Myanmar, there there are certainly reasons why there are, you know, the, these are not exactly the same. Um, you know, Russia is a nuclear-armed power and it invaded a sovereign state, you know, right right there at the at the sort of borders of Europe. And Myanmar is relatively isolated while certainly um, importantly a player with China, um, certainly not a, a country with as much strategic and economic importance. And it's also really important that we bring up that, and I've, I've tried to get a sense of this, but no one in Canberra is talking. There is a very well-known colleague of mine, Sean Turnell. He was an amazing professor, widely, widely loved by his um, colleagues, by his students, and by those who know him. He is um, a professor of economics from Macquarie University, and he was living in and remains in Myanmar when the coup happened. And he was one of the first people arrested, um, one of the only outsiders arrested. And he remains in detention now. Um, and it is possible that Canberra is trying to stay quiet in order to work behind the scenes to get Sean out of um, the country. But I mean, this is a really, this is a really devastating one. He is, uh, I know him uh, well. He is a kind, gentle person that cares deeply about Myanmar and uh, was living there because he wanted to do his very best to advise the country on the best economic policies to strengthen it. 
So the fact that he uh, remains behind bars now is is really really uh, a very a very very disturbing thing from the country and and one that those of us that know Sean really hope is is uh, reversed soon. But you know we we just don't know. We we have very little information about what's happening inside. Mm-hmm. Do you um, do you see any signs of optimism insofar as Myanmar is concerned and human rights? Both Ukraine and Myanmar, and this would be one of the similarities, have surprised the oppressing government quite significantly in their in the lasting um, the lasting efforts of opposition. The um, there's now something called the PDF, the Peace, People's Defense Force, in Myanmar that is fighting a very very well equipped military to try to continue. Uh, to push back, to engage in both um, some military action and also in civil disobedience. So the 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 the, the, the military military has has not had much shown much signs of backing down, but there have been some defections, as I mentioned earlier, and there have been um, you know some there's there's been some wins on the in, in the international arena. Um, I, I'm I'm fearful to predict. Um, we know that the current military, that the Burmese military, the Tatmadaw, has real sta- staying power. And while sanctions are important, um, they alone are, are not going to be something that will just quickly have the Myanmar military collapse. Similarly, in Ukraine, um, the the spirit of those within the country remains high. We do we do see some careful overtures from Zelensky because the uh, the the fear is that Russia is as pointed out a far more powerful uh, partner and or, or, or opponent in this equation and is not scared to use force so um, I think the attention of the international community is important and has in the past been somewhat lacking um, However, it's not a panacea. You know, the 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 kind of uh, the, the international community shaking its finger is not sufficient for countries to sit up and listen and say, "Well, all right, by all means, now we will just listen and do exactly as you've asked." We are, we are, we are unfortunately not in that position. Frankly, potentially, we may never have been, mm-hmm. because the uh, the possibilities for international governance are are low we don't we don't have an international police force we know that countries believe in their sovereignty and they they act accordingly it's mm, a good point you make uh, susan time has got right away from us it's been a very informative and pleasurable um, opportunity for me here uh, i enjoyed speaking with you yep too. no problem at all that was dr susan Banky, a senior lecturer at the sydney southeast asia center and uh, at the university of sydney and chair of the department of sociology and social policy at the university of sydney and let's hope that uh, people such as uh, dr Banky and, and and the messages that they put out there in the public um, do impact on enough people to to, to make create the conditions for worthwhile change. We'll take a short break. Don't go away. You've been listening to the Viewpoints Podcast, hosted by Henry Grossick and produced by Rob Kelly. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and rate us via Apple Podcasts.